Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to the GameDev.TV Community Podcast. I'm your host, KB. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Ricardo. This is Aaron Stackpole. Today's episode is on emerging technology and the essential skills that game developers should learn. We go into VR, AR, HoloLenses, the problems with VR, how VR is going to evolve, we're going to talk about AI. We're going to talk about skills you should learn, for instance, creativity, discipline, empathy, programming, and all the other good stuff that you need for game design, game development. So, guys, let's get into the podcast. So, the conversation is about up and coming technologies, huh? Yes. And uh, essential skills that game developers should learn or get into. So, Ricardo was asking about virtual reality and what do we think about that? That's definitely an up and coming technology. What do you think, Ricardo? Yeah, I say uh, it has a few issues that need to be solved before it becomes mainstream. Uh, They are mostly cost, motion sickness, especially, and uh, processing power because it takes a lot more than regular game. It runs at a higher frame rate and it has to be much better to keep you immersed. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and that raises the costs in the end. Mm-hmm. I think another one of the challenges that they have is how you actually make a person interact in a virtual yeah. world. So unless you're wearing, you know, like, what was that movie, Ready Player One? You got one of those full hap suits, right? Yeah. Haptic feedback suits with, like, the gloves and everything yeah. else. It's, so it's challenging everything. to... Yeah, but it's the same challenge you had when 3D games came, when, you know, 2D games came, when online games came, you know... Sure, but when we have a pointer or a camera that you're pointing at something, it's, it's relatively simple to indicate to the computer, I want to interact with that thing, yeah. whether it's pressing a button on my keyboard or my mouse or something. When you're in a virtual reality space, you've got these weird abstract like rings or whatever that you like point at things and it moves, you know, virtual hands around and you're, it's just, it's really disconcerting is really what it comes down to. <laughs> and it gets expensive. Yeah. Yes. Sure. One more piece of hardware. Mm-hmm. Especially because I don't see regular gaming going away anytime soon. It's going to have a controller plus the ring, plus the <laughs> VR headset. Plus the headset, right. So one of the things that I have had the opportunity to work with is the Microsoft HoloLens and doing augmented reality stuff. And as far as up-and-coming technologies and something that's useful from a business perspective, there's actually quite a bit of really innovative stuff that they're trying to do with that kind of stuff, largely having to do with being able to have experts that can sit in like a call center and they can use an AR experience to allow them to guide someone else to go and do something. So for example, a business can hire a high-end, you know, machine engineer who knows how to troubleshoot, you know, a, 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 a what an airline, you know, an airplane turbine engine or something, right? And they can send a less qualified engineer out into the field to work on that and they can have a shared experience where the more experienced person can say, okay, you know, you need to open up that whatever. You know, that's all easy to do and then say, oh, now let's look at this problem. Let's see, there's some wiring that's missing there. And the more the more senior person can can be used more effectively by by having 
you know, them sit in one place and share that experience with multiple people out in the field. So that kind of stuff definitely has some, some practical application from a, from a business perspective. Yeah, I think we will end up with a mix of both indeed, you know, using VR and AR for similar purposes and together. I also saw that in Unreal, you can start building and developing games with a VR headset, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Change a lot of things. And then also, I think VR headsets are going to be wireless, like cordless, because that's also has so many cords. Yeah, when mm-hmm. I was playing, the, the time I was playing, I started the, kind of turning to one side more than to the other. Mm-hmm. And I got to a point that was wrapping around me. Oh, <laughs> Don't fall, dude. Yeah, I had to pause and mm-hmm. turn around. Nice. That's funny. <laughs> What do you guys think about the new Unreal, like, photolistic uh, graphics that Quixel's working on? I know they're trying to release tutorials in the summertime, but it's it's looking really impressive. Like, material, like, the um, environment with the rocks and stuff, just, like, realistically, you throw something down and slowly, like, little particles break apart, and it just looks so good. Things are going to start looking real, real, like, I don't know how it's going to do with immersion. Yeah, I think a big part of that is just, you know, computing continues to get better each year, and so we're able to do more and more things. The truth of the matter is simulating reality is not reality, right? The the amount of computing power necessary to simulate reality is the entire computing power of the universe. <laughs> like, because the universe is simulating reality. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, when you're in video games, you know, we fake a lot of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and, yeah. But at the same time, you're you're just trying to make a close approximation. It's you know, people are able to you know suspend that suspend the suspension of disbelief. Is that what they call it? Yeah. 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 But yeah. yeah, I mean, the the newer technologies like ray casting, and even you know, when you look at APIs like Vulkan and DirectX 12, the ability to program stuff on the GPU, which is so much faster than working on, you know, your your main system CPU and your main system memory. And then being able to use some of these new features like the ray casting features on the RTX and so forth is just it's 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 getting to be scary beautiful. <laughs> yeah, but then we get the problem of the uncanny valley, right? Mm-hmm. Because the closer you get to reality the the easier it is to have a one small detail that completely breaks immersion. Completely breaks it. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, the last, uh, forgot the name of the game. Uh, Jesus, the, the Mass, Mass Effect. Andromeda. What was that again? Mass Effect Andromeda. They had uh, oh. the the issues with the graphics and stuff. At launch, that game was so broken. Yeah, I don't know. I played through quite a bit of it. I I don't think I finished it. I just kind of got bored after a while. The animations yeah. didn't really do it for me, and that was a big part of it for sure. Yeah, and it it's gonna suffer from a similar thing that uh, No Man's Sky suffered because uh, it launched so broken that all the early reviews are terrible so people don't pick up the game 
you know, that might actually be something that uh, we could all agree is necessary in upcoming technology is perhaps some businesses realizing that they need to stop shoving crap out the door before it's finished. <laughs> yeah, I was having a talk about it with a friend of mine like three or four years ago that we might be close to a video game crash again. Yeah. And the thing holding it back was mostly indie games. Because... You know, AAA games were getting lower and lower in quality, especially at launch, and they were having lower and lower life cycles. Mm-hmm. And in the end, you were playing full, full price for like six months of game instead of two years or three years that you got back in the day. Well, now people... most AAA games, they're focusing on the, like, the beautiful aspect of the game, the graphics, yeah. the way it looks, that... It spends so much money and time on it, and if the gameplay is not good, then they still have to ship it out. You just start getting games that look good, but don't really do anything. Play good. Yeah, it's just there, and you're like, God, but the game's beautiful, but it's just the same <laughs> quest over and over again. Like, Assassin's Creed is the most grindy game ever, but it's beautiful. Yeah, it's definitely beautiful. Yeah. Some of the most amazing animations I've ever seen mm-hmm. in a game that has zero depth. Yeah. <laughs> And then you look at something like Minecraft. Right. It looks ugly, chunky, but the gameplay has a huge amount of depth. Dwarf Dwarf Fortress is another great example of that. One of the most frustrating games ever, where basically, even if you succeed at it, you still die. (laughs) Yeah. You play the entire thing in entirely text. And I mean, it's like graphical text, but it's still just text. super deep gameplay you know i was actually having this conversation with a friend of mine the other day talking about like the death of mmos i think this was probably on facebook (laughs) the 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 main thing that i see is kind of a, a big problem in in the community really from that perspective is that is that a lot of the games have gone free to play and focused on microtransactions and there's a reason for that is because microtransactions make a lot of money I mean, that's all yeah. it really comes down to. Mm-hmm. And because of that, we've we've kind of backed ourselves into a corner in that people look at, you know, the, the idea of, oh, you're going to launch an MMO and you want me to pay a subscription fee? Well, that's absurd. Why would I do that? Yeah. Because I can just play these other 70, you know, 70 games that don't yeah. have a subscription fee. And the business model of microtransaction doesn't really work for MMOs. Not particularly, right? Because yeah, that that really puts you into a pay-to-win type situation yeah. in a lot of cases. the The challenge, of course, is is that you know those cosmetic things are not good for building community. And while you know the conversation, I think was talking about like you know you so you think you can make an MMO more successful than World of Warcraft. There's a reason why World of Warcraft is as successful as it is, and it's because they intentionally designed it for casual players. They make the the game very accessible, easy to get into, and it's Blizzard, so they can still, you know, basically say, look, if you want to play this game, you're going to pay a subscription fee. It's big enough that they can still do that. Yeah. But let's talk about, you know. At the right time. (laughs) Right, right. But let's talk about, like, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna embarrass my sister terribly on this and and, and just completely throw oh, her no. under the bus. 
So my sister is notorious for for changing servers in World of Warcraft. Uh, she'll she'll find whatever the top raiding guild is, and join them and play with them for several months and piss somebody off and then move to another server. <laughs> And there's just there's no community there that can that can stop that kind of behavior. If you did that in some of the older MMOs like Ultima Online or World of Work or excuse me EverQuest, the community knew who you were. You know, if you were if you were a notorious loot thief, then then you just wouldn't get into any of the high end raids. And from a perspective of creating longevity in a game it's more about community than anything else i think that a game like fallout 76 has a lot of merits but its weakness is that the community isn't great because there's not really a good way to communicate with other people in game other than using a headset if you do have a headset my entire friends list is filled with people who also have headsets. There's a great community there because you can talk with people. You can get to know them. One of my, you know, one of my friends there is, you know, works rehabs, you know, works a rehab place at night and he sometimes logs in, you know, kind of in the middle of the morning, my time when he's not working. And we have great conversations about, you know, what's going on in our lives. He's like, you know, 10 years younger than I am, has a couple of kids and, you know, he, I've had so <laughs> without getting too personal here I had cancer last year and because of it I uh, I was on opiate painkillers for a period of time and so we got you know to kind of talk about addiction and that kind of stuff so there was that community involvement there you know that that is missing from a lot of these kinds of games and so when you see like you know this this crap triple a game came out with amazing graphics and beauty but nobody cares about it because there's just nothing holding you into it. That's not really on topic for what this podcast was about, is it? <laughs> yeah, let's keep going. Yeah. Awesome. Like yeah. yeah, we can always edit. We can always cut it on the editing floor. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, another issue is that the age of gamers is kind of going up. And with that, MMOs kind of fall flat because... The gameplay was designed for, you know, teenagers that have 15 hours a day to play. Yeah, That's I ruined really, a, I ruined really a marriage animals. because of EverQuest. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, look at old Koreans MMO, Korean MMOs that took you like six months to get max level. This is insane. Uh, people lose interest, especially because nowadays you, uh, you have most players play like two to five hours. Mm. Two to five hours playing it. something like an old MMO, you can't really get the full experience. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That was actually one of the things I noticed, the difference between EverQuest and, and, uh, and World of Warcraft. So I was in Fires of Heaven, which was the guild that was run by Alex Apraziabi, who ended up being the lead writer or one of the lead quest writers for World of Warcraft. Um, we were all in the beta, of course, and the one thing that I noticed about the differences between the games is that mechanically they were almost identical. You know, the the same kinds of concepts of the same stats and how those stats affected you know your 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 character and the different kinds of items that you could get with bonuses and all of that kind of stuff was largely mechanically the same between the two games. The main difference was that World of Warcraft was about three times faster. 
which made it a little bit more challenging because coming from EverQuest, me and my friends, you know, we used to like play three or four or more characters simultaneously on multiple computers. And you could do that because EQ was slow enough that, you know, you could turn from one computer and type some commands and then turn to another one and type some commands and there would be stuff going on, you know, that you didn't really have to be there all the time. And I do believe that that was probably part of their design discussions as well when they were building the game is like, you know, we want to make it interactive and engaging to keep people playing. You know, I, I still played two characters in WoW uh, pretty regularly, but it was much more challenging compared to EQ where I could play like four or five or six. And a lot of that just had to do with the speed of, of, the, of the game. Yeah, and that also helps help them uh, get the non-RPG player base because if you're used to D&D, yes, uh, a slow game is, you know, expected to get someone that was playing, I don't know, a Medal of Honor or something, an FPS, someone who played Doom or something. Yeah, for sure. Make them play uh, pretty much a simulation of a tabletop RPG. Mm -hmm. <laughs> work. Depends how long you want to spend your time in the game. And there's another thing that uh, WoW did, because it's technically just a MMO RPG for a franchise that already existed. Mm -hmm. And people have been trying to replicate that ever since. But they forget the most important aspect that was the timing. I, you have I think honestly, the, the most important the aspect, the point that I was trying to make was was the social aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, you know, because the game was so slow... Success. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, so one of the things about the pace of EverQuest was that there was forced downtime. So there was two things that you had to do in the game. One of them was that you had to group. The other one was that you also had to rest between combat. And so this, this caused a couple of specific things to happen. You had to have a degree of trust with the people that you were, that you were grouping with because the game was challenging from the perspective of we, we you know, we, a, a group of people could very easily go into a dungeon very deeply and find themselves wiped and then spend the next three days trying to recover their crap. Like that was a thing that would happen. <laughs> oh, wow. <clears throat> But if you had people that, you know, were skilled and were trustworthy, you know, when you found them, you stuck with them. And then you would all go into these dungeons and you'd fight your way down deeply to find, you know, rare spawns off of rare, you know, rare items that would drop off of rare spawns monsters in these places. And you would sit there for hours and hours and hours and you were just talking with each other the whole time. It was, it was more like, you know, a, a chat room that also had a game attached to it. Right? The social aspect was the core of the gameplay rather than the actual game. It keeps people coming back. And right. also, like yeah. in Reddit, they create the communities of people. They'll just post stuff, have like meme posts on like weekends and stuff. And people want to be a part of that. Mm hmm. Want to feel special, like they're belonging to something. Yeah, so that's why I brought up the story about my sister, because it's like that community doesn't really exist in World of Warcraft. You you don't, you know, you can just add yourself to a random raid queue and go get loot. <laughs> like you don't it doesn't matter who you're playing with most of the time. Yeah. I remember reading yeah, something that people, even though they don't really interact with a lot of people in games like that, they still feel like they can they can reach out and somebody will be there. 
and it gives them they feel more comfortable because not everybody's extroverted, so they kind of just want to do their own thing, but still be part of a group. Yeah, uh, I have I played Burnscape in two different different periods, right? Uh, when I was younger, I had a ton of friends and stuff. We had our clan, and then I came came back like a couple of years ago, and I do everything solo. And I think it has a lot to do with, you know, timing and the age I was, the age I am right now. Because uh, back in the day, I had time to do things inefficiently. Because <laughs> I could play 15 hours per day, 10 hours per day. And life. when you can play like one or two, you, you really want that one or two hours to be top performance. Yeah, there's definitely some something to be said about as you get older, you get better at being efficient, for sure. Yeah. And you can't afford to you know, hang around and just talk in the game, you know. Perhaps the corollary to that is that... You never get to the end. <laughs> right. <laughs> Perhaps the corollary to that is that when you're younger, you need more practice. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Learn faster. Yeah. I think many games got the thing that you came for the game, but you stayed for the stayed for the, the players. Yeah, but it's really hard to replicate nowadays, especially because everyone has phones. There's voice chat, so it's really easy to stay in your echoing chamber, you know, with your IRL mm -hmm. friends, or meet one or two people and play only with them. Yeah, that's true for sure. I've definitely run into people in Fallout 76 that I, it's obvious that they're playing in a group, but they're not talking in game. So they're probably on Discord with each other or something yeah, like that. Yeah. I hate that though, because it's like a disconnect. Because back then you just join people and you can talk about anything. But now there's a split between game chat and uh, uh, what's it called? the group chat. So now you don't know who you can talk to because not everybody's going to be in the same game chat. Yeah. Yeah. Just no more MW2 days, so we can just trash talk everyone. But also with the VR, I think Facebook was working with a social aspect where you can now, I don't know, it was like two years ago I watched a video, but they, you can go into someone's room or be in maybe like a, a store in VR and interact with people in ways that you can never do before. So you can be so in Paris with somebody who's actually in Paris and you feel like you're actually with them. And I feel like that can eventually turn into awesome communities in gaming. So it's a second life. Yeah. Which is helpful for people who can't really move around or have like disabilities. Kind of like PlayStation Home was on PS3. Yeah, there's something to be said indeed for being able to go out and hang out with people that can't physically mm -hmm. you know, by budget or something because going to Paris can be expensive. Yeah. There have been quite a few movies about that over the last few, in the last couple of decades as well. Um, what was there was one with Bruce Willis where he was, uh, of surrogates, I think it was what it was called, where basically everybody just kind of stayed in their homes, but then they'd go and sit in these chairs, and then they had these surrogate robots that looked exactly like them that they would then go out into reality, you know, through like a virtual experience. I can see that kind of stuff actually coming to be <laughs> at some point in the future. 
And I mean, even like what I was talking about earlier with the HoloLens, I mean, that's a lot of kind of what that is. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the expert. I'm sitting here with, you know, a HoloLens on my head and I'm talking to a more junior person who's out there in the field. They're kind of like my surrogate, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> AI is another big thing. And if you look at, uh, you know, just what's going on in the news right now with like Google and the AI, you know, ethics board and things like that, where they're, you know, starting to talk about like, you know, we, should we allow people to build, you know, certain kinds of things with our technology? That's an important question to ask because as we're starting to get to the point where we're creating AI that is, you know, able to pass the Turing test and is able to, you know, interact naturally with people while at the same time having massively more dangerous abilities than people do, it's it's important to start considering that kind of stuff. Like, you know, should we have AI that's that does facial recognition? Should we have that kind of facial recognition stuff built into, for example, the body cam on a police officer's suit, right? Mm-hmm. Is, is that, you know, what, what does that actually do for privacy? Have any of you ever heard of the, well, it was originally a book, but they made a movie out of it as well called A Scanner Darkly? No. Mm-hmm. What was that about? A Scanner Darkly. Here, I have, I have it on DVD, but I don't know where the DVD no. is right now. Um, anyway, it's an old movie with uh, Woody Harrelson, Keanu Reeves, um, What's her name? Robert Downey Jr. and Winona Ryder are the four four people in it. And basically, um, it's a movie about, you know, sometime in the near future, surveillance and police state is just like normal. Like there's like this, they have a couple of scenes where there's like people sitting in a room where they're just listening, you know, on headsets and they have access to just their closed circuit cameras everywhere. And they have full access to, you know, being able to read lips and hear, you know, the audio of what somebody's talking on the phone. They can tap directly into that kind of stuff. Obviously, you know, this is the the extreme version of, of the you know, dystopian police state future. But that kind of stuff is coming to be a reality. Like with AI technology, we can have a body cam that's able to see, you know, in front of a police officer and can recognize a face and match that to a database and say that person is a criminal, you know, and, you know, imagine our police walking around with augmented reality headsets, even Microsoft is working on like a combat version of it, right? There was a whole entire thing where people internal to Microsoft were like, we don't like the idea that you got a, you know, a, a contract with the DOD to create augmented reality battle gear where people can have like tactical overlays on there because, you know, people at Microsoft are kind of concerned about the ethics of, you know, of should we allow this technology to be used for that kind of stuff? Because it can make people way more lethal. It it can be dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. So thinking about, you know, what can we do with that kind of technology? We can do a lot with it and it's scary what we can do with it. And I think it's really important that, you know, companies, especially that develop this kind of technology take, take take care to make sure that you know that 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 if we do do these kinds of things that they're done in such a way that's smart careful. yeah smart careful exactly i mean i don't really know the right way to put it for sure 
yeah, ethically minded for, you know, keeping in, in mind that, you know, we do value privacy here, yeah. you know, <laughs> power corrupts and stuff. Yeah. Cause you know, that goes very close to absolute power. It really does. It, it really is. I mean, it's almost omnipotence. Yeah, it's pretty much the twist, the twist on uh, Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Well, you know, having a machine that can take oh, down right. a bunch of targets at the same time. Right. The same idea. Yeah. Spoiler. Yeah, that's kind of the whole entire Age of Ultron Spoiler thing, right? Was, <laughs> you know, and the and the, the yeah, the, mm-hmm. yeah, the ultimate AI able to do all of those things. Yeah, but I, I feel it's a bit like Jurassic Park, you know. <laughs> Let me draw the comparison first. Wait, wait, what? Before you left, uh, <laughs> we had so many movies telling us it's a bad idea that <laughs> it's pretty hard to imagine it coming to reality but yeah ai is a lot more plausible to, to exist and kind of go over the overboard than you know living dinosaurs <laughs> <laughs> but i mean i hope at least that people who make the dinosaurs in the future watch the jurassic park movies to know what <laughs> not to do yeah they'll make an invisible dinosaur it's not gonna be good yeah, and don't you know have a park with a bunch of people walking around and T Rexes and stuff. It doesn't did, go well. Did you play that Jurassic Park video game? It was so much fun. You could like intentionally break your walls down and let the dinosaurs loose on the. <laughs> I never did that. I promise. Oh, yeah, no. Of course not. <laughs> this was a park making simulation. Yeah, it was kind of like, you know, the same kind of engine as like Roller Coaster Tycoon or something like that, but it was just, it was Jurassic Park. It was like themed after the new movies, you know, with Chris so Pratt and all of those. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay, so it's one, uh, one of the mobile games, right? No, no. It's no, it was a desktop game. PC no. game. I had it on Steam. Also, it's pretty new. Didn't even know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah so pretty new. Diamonds just got loose. You can shoot it. Tranquilize it. Or just yeah, like yeah. That, yeah. Yeah, but they, you have to try to run away with the car and have the zoom in your mm-hmm. <laughs> rear yeah. mirror. Jurassic World Evolution is what it was called. Uh, okay. I Getting back to that whole entire thing about uh, you know games that don't have a whole lot of content to them, so I'm just looking at this. You played 17 hours, and I beat the entire game in that amount of time. Like, twice. <laughs> what, <laughs> yeah, like, 15 years ago, that would be a lot. <laughs> Yeah, sure, but I mean, it was it was also a very pretty game, mm-hmm. yeah, but not and, real deep. <laughs> no. Yeah, uh, coming back to that, I, I'd say that graphics are the easiest aspect to get kind of right because it's pretty straightforward. Good graphics are good graphics, bad graphics are bad graphics. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole lot of very talented artists out there. Yeah, and when you go to gameplay and and stuff it's actually creative work you know you have to make something new and interesting you know i think we were talking about a little bit of that ageism there you know some of the you know a lot of the gamers are getting older and i think that there's perhaps with the older generation an expectation of more quality there but i think it's also worth pointing out that a lot of us came from a world that didn't have computer games didn't have this stuff so a lot of us when you know a lot of the early games 
These days we call them indie games, but that was just how it was in the 80s when people were writing games. It was like five or six people, right? Um, but a lot of these people were building these systems based off of pen and paper games that they played. You know, Dungeons and Dragons, GURPS, you know, Borderlands, or not Borderlands, uh, Traveler, you know, other kinds of RPG systems. I, you know, I used to play Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. There was actually an RPG mm-hmm. for that when I was a kid, you know. <laughs> I played a porcupine ninja. It was pretty cool. Um, so the depth and understanding of how that kind of stuff works from groups of people that were sitting around rolling dice with each other to make these calculations and stuff, you know, we, we kind of understood those systems and perhaps newer game developers don't have that same kind of background. I mean, I know that there's plenty of people that still play pen and paper games, of course. But when it comes to programming that stuff into a computer, that was that that becomes a little bit a little bit of a of a leap. I, I feel like you know hobbyists that play pen and paper role playing games just do that. And computer programmers and computer game programmers, they just do computer programs, right? And so there's a little bit of a disconnect there when you see, you know, what are the, you know, what are the, you know, the, the, who are the game designers that, you know, everybody thinks of as like fantastic game designers. So there's Sid Meier and there's the guy that did uh, the Spore and the Sims. uh, What's his name? Yeah, well, right, right. And then there's, uh, you know, Raph Coster, who did all of the Ultima games and Star Wars Galaxies. And, you know, I mean, you, you can name, you know, the you know, American McGee was another guy at id Software. You can name like all of the, you know, all of those old school designers on 10 fingers, right? <laughs> there's not a huge, you know, there's not a huge amount of them out there that have that same kind of background. And, and, Game design is definitely something that takes talent and time and, yeah. and depth to get. And if you're just pumping out, you know, PUBG or Fortnite or something like that, well, you know, so we can get the gun mechanics really, really accurate, right? But does that really uh-huh. make a game? <laughs> to be fair, games don't have accurate gun mechanics. <laughs> right. They have Hollywood gun mechanics. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Looks good, not practical. Hmm. So what are some essential skills game developers should have? Yeah, I think it comes back to understanding especially the basics. Because if you know how how to program, how to learn programming, it's really easy to pick up a new framework, a new engine, Mm -hmm. uh, a new concept even. even though the concept like in terms of terms of knowing how to program and learning <clears throat> learning <clears throat> learning VR or AR is a lot harder than learning uh, a new framework for something you already know how to do, but it's still a lot easier. And an important thing you really have to know how you learn. Because people learn in different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, the, also the ability to work as a team, communicate, and actually... Oh, yeah, that, that's really important. I think, yeah, key. And, yeah, and that's something I see a lot with programmers, that they tend to be really introvert, and uh, most have big issues working in teams. Uh, you know, my, my wife is a project manager. What, what you see the most is great programmers that have no idea how to talk to people. It's a shame. 
There's definitely a, a strong need for for being able to put yourself in other people's shoes. Yeah. The uh, there's actually a whole entire you know, new field of 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 work having to do with experience. Like we don't necessarily talk about user interface so much as we talk about user experience these days. And a lot of that comes from the empathy of being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes and imagine what their experience might be like. And then being able to translate that into something useful. There's a, I, I feel like there's actually been kind of a, when you look at the way that software development has shifted, I feel like there's been a bit of a shift away from designing things and more towards just kind of doing it and then seeing if it works and then asking the end user, you know, is this good enough? And if it's not, then doing something else. I, I just had a conversation with a, with a senior manager from a company that I've been talking to for a new position. And, and that was kind of, you know, one of those things that he was, that he was asking was like, how do you, you know, how do you decide you know, what you're going to work on? And I'm like, well, first off, you have to paint the target. I mean, that's, that's, that's the most important thing to me is define exactly what we're going towards or at least get close to it because there's rings on that target, right? You know, eventually you're trying to hit the bullseye, but you need to at least be throwing at the board. <laughs> and if you don't know where you're going, then, then it creates problems. Somebody can say, you know, this is what my job is. This is how I do it. That doesn't necessarily tell me what I need to do to help you achieve that, right? And that communication, like you were saying, is super, super important, you know, making sure that you understand, you know, what somebody's trying to accomplish and, and take it another degree further. I, I realize this is less about games and more about business, but when you're writing business software, you're going to be considering the person who's going to be using that software, but then they're using that software to serve someone else, right? The business is about, you know, dealing with their customers. So you also need to understand what that person is, you know, what that next degree out that other person is going to be, you know, is what, what is their experience interacting with the user of your software? There's, there's layers of that onion that have to be peeled and yeah, being able to, you know, be insightful and empathetic and put yourself in those different positions is vital to being able to write and design good software. Yeah, I'd say that's an issue that you see with many, many areas that people tend to be hobbyists first and then go work, like programming or drawing or something else. Uh, people forget it, it's a business. You know, you have a client, you have goals. And especially when you're getting started, you might have to do things you don't really like maybe use some programming languages you rather not be using or some technologies you don't want to learn but it's important to to get those first steps mm -hmm. yeah for sure i agree and having a, a a whole view of the business helps a lot to understand what your small part is doing because nowadays you have big projects you know you don't have two or three people coding you have 20 50 or something especially in 
triple A games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. You have like 50 coders and 100 artists and yeah. 50 people doing sound design. And yeah. Have you actually read the credits while waiting for a post-credit scene in the movie? It's a lot of names. It's a lot. Yeah. Lot it never stops. Yeah. Never ends. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating looking at that kind of stuff because you kind of see like, you know, there's there they'll list them by unit, right? And so this is like the US unit and then the UK yeah. unit and then you know, and then the Asia unit and there's just like it's, you know, the same group of staff in all of those same places with their own IT departments and you know, hundreds of animators and people that do just lighting and yeah, learning all of those tools, especially, you know, coming from, you know, our gamedev.tv group here, you're learning tools that will be applicable skills even in the movie industry because a lot of movies these days includes just a lot of programming and yeah. and a lot of art because it's it's honestly it's cheaper you you put the star in front of a green screen and then you can build a virtual scene behind them that's much easier than having you know your crew come out and actually build an actual city for example yeah. <laughs> and sometimes it's just not even possible right i mean what would what would wakanda look like you know if you had to actually build wakanda <laughs> yeah, it, it would be like New York. <laughs> New York. Yeah, yeah. Or some weird big city in a unknown country, just so people don't recognize it. <laughs> right. <laughs> the classic uh, Vancouver, Br British Columbia, where nobody recognizes that skyline. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, and, uh, CG is. It's important because uh, there are things that, that are kind of almost impossible to do with practical effects. Uh. So the uh, recent release of Bohemian Rhapsody, there's a segment in the bonus features where they talk about how they did the, the recreation of, what is it, Wembley Stadium for the Live Aid concert? Yeah, Josh is nodding. <laughs> um, yeah, so basically, um, actually, I got to see this at Microsoft's campus uh, last year. Actually, about this time last year, I went to what they called their mixed reality partner program, where they had different companies would send four people in and then we all formed these mixed teams where we all basically did kind of a game jam type thing and we built a little AR project. Um, but they gave us a ton of samples and they also walked us through their studios. And one of the places that we went was the place where they actually record um, like live character actions, like digitized people. And this was just absolutely fascinating. It was this room that was like fully green all the way around and it had um, there was either six or eight of these towers and each of these towers had six cameras on them. Then they pointed at all of the different directions of the person. And then they all piped all of the output feeds from all of that into a computer system that would basically just grind out a keyframe animation model 
representation of the person standing in the middle of that. They did something very similar to that for Bohemian Rhapsody, where they had all of the people from, I think it was, I think they said they had maybe 40 or 60 people or something like that were the actual crowd. But then they just had all of these people go into an augmented reality type place and stand looking in different directions and making different kinds of gestures and stuff. And then they programmed a system to replicate all of those people and scatter them out into the crowd using different kinds of outfits and different kinds of combinations of moves and other kinds of things. And it was like they were able to recreate this huge crowd of people out of, you know, the images of a of hundred you know, or less people, you know, a crowd of, of, of tens of thousands out of that. And it was all done with augmented reality and virtual reality type technology. So, yeah, I mean, when we're talking about like emerging technologies, that's the place to be because, you know, it's being used everywhere <laughs> from business to movies to video games. Yeah, it's, it's an exciting time to be in games honestly yeah and it's already at a point that you know it's not coming back it's different from like vr that might not pan out because people might not like vr games i think it just needs to evolve vr games yeah i think it will get to a point that we'll have good vr games because nowadays blur setup ah yeah that's true but i see nowadays that VR games are mostly just, you know, regular games that you can't play on VR. Yeah. Like how, okay, you can use your head to turn around. <laughs> That's why Borderlands or Skyrim VR is kind of cool, because it's taken an old game, and then you can explore it in a way that you never can before. Like Skyrim, you were able to, like, shoot backwards and forwards magic, where before it was just stuck forward. Hmm. That's a whole different dynamic. Yeah, once you start incorporating the VR aspect into the gameplay, is when you will start to get good VR games. Mm-hmm. Explain more about that, KB. What, what were you saying about like being able to shoot magic in multiple directions? I, I haven't I haven't really played Skyrim a whole oh, lot. Oh, it's amazing. So. so you can you can there's enemies in front of you and behind you, and you can position yourself where you're shooting fire in front of you and behind you to get the enemies around you. You can feel like badass and then you can put your shield up and then like dodge an attack that's in front of you and hit you at your right and go to your left it's all dynamic and same with the mm. bow you can you actually have to pull your hand back and shoot and you can it, it, the range of attack is so different from the standard game where it's just forward shoot your attack it feels more fluid and comfortable and, and epic it, it feels epic you actually feel like you're an adventurer the dragon boy yeah, you yeah, I could see that. Mm-hmm. Like, like what you were saying about like actually holding your shield up—that sounds like that's maybe one of my biggest problems when I'm playing games. I don't like, you know, I, I'm I'm not a great defender. Mm-hmm. I, I just believe that the best defense is just murder people faster. Yeah, <laughs> but I could totally picture like you know if you're playing that kind of a game, you know, being able to block by putting your arm physically up in front of you, you have a natural like literally your person has a natural reflex to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So that would feel so much more natural. That would, yeah, that would definitely feel epic is a good way to put it. Yeah, that was something I felt when I was playing Resident Evil on PSVR. Uh, I was playing with a controller, so, you know, holding a controller in a VR environment, it's not very immersive. 
Yeah, I, uh, so I, the only Resident Evil that I have is Resident Evil 7, which I, I didn't really like it all that much, but a big part of that was because I couldn't kill Mia in the first scene on normal, like after trying about 700 times, because I just couldn't hit her in the head enough to actually make her die. <laughs> on easy mode, you only had to shoot her in the body like four times, but on normal, it was like you had to hit her in the head like eight times, including a reload of your gun. I feel like, you know, so, I mean, I was in the military. I know how to shoot a gun. I'm, you know, I don't own any guns, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I know how to use a weapon, and I feel like if I was in a VR environment, I'd probably be able to hit her in the head. <laughs> versus trying to manipulate my controller to do that yeah especially if you had the vr aim controller where you're actually holding the gun mm-hmm. yeah then yeah that's something funny with vr we will probably go back to having those weird controllers that you had in the snes era and stuff. <laughs> right your duck hunt gun thing. yeah yeah, yeah, yeah something like that. that exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> And the game's gonna mock you because you can't shoot the dog. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's definitely exciting. Yeah. I, I, you, you've almost convinced me to get a VR headset. Like <laughs> almost. Three hundred dollars now. You can get the PSVR with Borderlands Two and Beat Saber. And Beat Saber is like the game you must have. Ah, yeah. For VR. Yeah. Beat yeah, Saber so looks awesome. Yeah. yeah. It's VR guitar hero, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I was pretty awesome at Guitar Hero. Star I Wars, enjoyed that one. <laughs> well, that, that game awesome makes no sense, but looks fun. Yeah. I think that was an awesome conversation we had. Yeah. Upcoming VR and technology and skills. You guys want to say anything else? Yeah, I think in the end it all comes down to VR, AR, and AI. Yeah. Uh, Outside of the basics, of course. So you have to know how to program and then learn something. Yeah, machine learning is another aspect of AI. And uh, we're actually seeing a lot of that kind of stuff starting to emerge in, in game design and, and as well. We're starting to see, you know, Unity's got, you know, a machine learning rig in it that you can, you know, that you can attach your objects to and, and you know, simulate behavior through through reinforcement patterns and stuff like that. I think um, I think that some of the some of the more interesting some of the more interesting things are being discovered almost accidentally with machine learning. Like um, I was reading a story where they were talking about how they basically passed a bunch of like classical music into a machine learning algorithm and then asked the machine learning algorithm to create new music that emphasized certain kinds of traits of the music. And, and the music that came out of the system was just like hauntingly beautiful just because, you know, what you put into it and, and how you describe it and, and, and how you build those, those reinforcement models can lead to some very interesting interesting results that are often very unexpected like you know you wouldn't expect a computer to be able to write hauntingly beautiful music right <laughs> you know, from scratch right without giving it anything other than just feeding it in you know a bunch of, of classical music or whatever it happens to be that kind of stuff is is exciting because i feel like 
there's there's discoveries that will be made that are are completely serendipitous and completely at random and unexpected and and i think that that kind of stuff will eventually lead to a whole lot of you know joy and happiness and and fun for for people <laughs> as as they said back in the 90s in that one song we'll make great pets uh another application you could have would be something like an open world rpg that the enemies come with just basic ai and they learn based on you know dying to you a bunch of times yeah that kind of stuff is scary i I told you about steve bombs you know steve bond's original ai in (laughs) half-life that thing was scary this was in the you know in the mid 90s and you know he had to dumb it down a huge amount just just to make the game playable Mm -hmm. i'm not sure i would want to play a game against uh against an ai that could learn and change its behavior live in an online game i mean that would just become like impossible you <laughs> could you imagine yeah, like people would have to, to form that. bigger and bigger groups of people to fight against the ai <laughs> yeah, it might yeah. actually end up being really cool too yeah. because like you have to form an army literally to fight against the yeah, yeah. you would get to a point that to beat a single boss you would need the entire server <laughs> <laughs> but uh it would be an entire game that is the mr freeze fight in arkham city <laughs> you know, you oh, can't I get what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, and that fight is amazing, by the way. It is. Play the game if you haven't you played the game. Yeah, you can't beat Mr. Freeze at the same time twice. Yeah. You have to change it up. It's fun because it's not only good in terms of gameplay mechanics, it really fits the character because it's a super genius. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, once. I think Last of Us 2 is trying to do that. I don't think as good as Mr. Freeze, but like. They're very interactive and different. Yeah, but uh, the Mr. Freeze fight is a closed environment. You have yeah, kind of a limited number of times you have to hit him. I think it's five, four, something like that. I don't remember. I think so. So it's a lot easier than an entire game. Mm-hmm. But spreading that concept to an entire game doesn't have to be an AI that learns how to beat you all the time. Uh, it maybe could be as long as it didn't have any mechanic that could abuse to beat you every single time yeah it needs to be balanced though where it's fun and challenging but not like annoying it's challenging yeah it would work more in an online game i'd say because you could meet with other people but yeah you would have something like in breath of the wild that the enemies start to get stronger as your character gets stronger but in a more meaningful way because in the end it's just you know extra health and extra damage uh, which is pretty common in rpgs i'd say having the enemies only be stronger because they have more health or a higher hit chance (laughs) you know but them having different mechanics depending on you know their quote-unquote level would be nice and you you don't even have to you know put the machine learning in the game you could just use it to develop the tactics and then ship it with the Mm -hmm. pre-built and make it over time yeah rather than having that machine learning happening happening in game you can train the ai and then kind of lock that model down to yeah 
of this like is, pure form. This is their current level of intelligence and their current challenge level. Yeah. And make like several different profiles for that too. Yeah. That's a really good point. In fact, you could even actually, I could imagine some kind of a system where you would actually let the machine learning model train while people were playing the game and then use that to retune the model later on without, you know, without yeah. letting it use that reinforcement live, but still you as the game designer being able to look at that and say, you know, okay, so players have, have gotten bored with this fight because they figured out, you know, that there's this flaw in the AI, but the machine learning algorithm has figured out how to get around that. So let's just go ahead and let the, <laughs> let the monster use that you know, knowledge that it figured out. Launch for a while. That many are unbeatable. Uh, hey, you know, the first dragon that they put into EverQuest, they assumed nobody would be able to beat it until somebody figured out that they could uh, chain complete heals together. And then somebody killed the first dragon in EverQuest and it dropped a piece of cloth because they haven't put a loot table on it. <laughs> they didn't think anybody oh, could I... kill it. Yeah, <laughs> totally <laughs> it's funny uh, the history of RuneScape has a similar aspect that the first player to max out his smithing level uh, they hadn't made the, the table go to max level because <laughs> they never thought people would actually put that much time into the game so when someone got max level on smithing they made a new item so the guy had control of the, over the entire supply <laughs> he was like the richest guy ever <laughs> Yeah, it, it's funny because when they made the game, they never thought people would play like five hours a day. And now I have people that play 16 hour days for years in a row. Yeah, that's definitely one thing that you, you have to pay attention to as a game designer is never, ever, ever underestimate the amount of time and effort that your players will yeah. put into figuring out everything about your game. You as one designer cannot counter the effect of the 9 billion people on this planet <laughs> and this, the portion of them that may be playing your game and figuring things yeah, out. Yeah, that's the whole thing about speedrunning. It only exists because people really want to scrutinize the game. Yeah, that's right. I I was absolutely impressed by the kind of the final puzzle in Fallout 76. It's it, it requires knowledge that you cannot obtain within the game. And I'm sure people figured out how to do it like day one. It's I mean it's a crazy puzzle. If if you want, I can explain it briefly. Yeah, is it to get to the dragon, Dean? Or is it what is it? No, in Fallout 76, so the, the ultimate thing that you do in the game is you drop these blast zones by firing a nuke at somewhere on the map, and then you go and farm the blast zones for high-end items oh, okay. and stuff like that. But the way that you launch that nuke is that you have to go through this whole entire series of of of, of kind of puzzle pieces. So there's three nuke silos, and wandering randomly around the map, there are these... Uh, these scorched officers that drop code pieces. So the code pieces are a letter and a number combination. You have to collect eight of them for each of the silos. You only need to collect eight of them. You don't have to collect all 24, but you collect eight of them. And then that gives you a scrambled code number and you have to figure out how to unscramble it. So there's a couple of things that you have to do to do that in the, there's this high end place called the enclave bunker in the enclave bunker there's a code word that slowly decodes over the course of the week it just has like a little reader board and it'll pop up letters think like wheel of fortune style um over the course of time and eventually that turns into a code word you then have to use a cryptological mm, 
technique to create a encrypted cipher bet and then you take your code letters from those officers and decode those into eight other letters so they're already encrypted you have to decode them you have to decrypt them and then that is an eight letter anagram that you have to solve and then re-encrypt it back into the numbers so that you'll know what the launch code is Thankfully, like there's a web page that you can go to <laughs> where you can just look up the codes for this week <laughs> because people usually solve it on Monday, which is insane to begin with. But like every week it resets. So you have to do this repeatedly every single week. You have to go and collect all of the code numbers, figure out the cipher bet, decode, decrypt, solve the anagram, recrypt it back, and then you've got your code, right? And then you have to go and beat the dungeon. And there's another piece where you have to like somewhere randomly around the map, there's a cargo bot flying around. You have to shoot it out of the sky and it has a key card that then allows you to type in the code. And then finally you can launch a nuke. But the fact that you had to like know how to do that kind of encryption outside of the game was one of the most shocking things to me as a game designer, because that just proves right there. Do not ever underestimate what your players can do. Mm. Yeah. They will always, they will always blow your mind. <laughs> yeah, and then you have that, like those real life games. You have, you know, some puzzle on the internet, and people just create a Reddit page, solve it as impossible as it might be. I mean, after I, you know, I, uh, that was how I learned how to do it. I solve, you know, I, I found somebody's thread on Reddit that explained how to solve the puzzle. And then I actually wrote a little console program to solve the puzzle. Like I'd go and collect the codes and then I'd like type them into my program and then it would say, okay, here's your resultant letters, solve the anagram. I, I failed to solve the anagram a number of times and wasted key cards doing it. It was kind of, it was kind of funny until then I found out that there was a website where you could just go and look up the codes for this week, which was, but you know, from a, from a programming, you know, exercise perspective, that was kind of fun. You know, I, I wrote a little console program to help me decrypt, you know, this puzzle in, 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 in an online game. The fact that, you know, that just, that just blew my mind though. I mean, like there's nothing in the game that tells you about how to do this. There's one, you know, entry on a computer terminal that says, you know, that there was some, alphabet encryption technique that they used and that was basically the entire clue in the game right they didn't tell you actually how to do it you had to know how to or you had to know somebody who knew how to do you know that kind of cryptography that's that's just mind-blowing to me <laughs> yeah but that's been around for ages have, have you ever played uh, zelda 2 uh the the gold the the side scroller yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was actually my favorite one. It was actually the only yeah. Nintendo game I actually owned. I don't know why people like panned that game so hard. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, it's super cool. Uh, it's hard as hell, though. Yeah, it is. I, I never actually beat it. I, I managed to get you know through to the final castle like five or six times, but never actually managed to beat that final castle. Yeah, so uh, what happens is you get to a point in the game that you get a spell, the name is Spell, <laughs> and it does pretty much nothing until you get to a random screen and then you use the spell and a dungeon pops up. And there's pretty much no way to find it out. Oh, wow. You had to learn it by, you know, 
reading Nintendo Power or something. Or or just trial and error. Yeah. Um, they even made the uh, thing about the the uh, adventure game on the Atari um, in Ready Player One where they were talking about the hidden dot. Mm-hmm. So I do remember playing that game when I was a kid and I found the hidden dot. There was something in the game as you were playing it that got you into the habit of walking around rooms and clicking on the wall everywhere. There was just, part of it was because if you walked into certain areas, um, there would be like triggers where you'd walk across the, you know, walk across the threshold and it would like flood the room and you'd die. So you'd start to get into the habit because of, because of the other gameplay mechanics in the game, you'd get into the habit of clicking everywhere on the wall. Eventually, if you did that and you were in that hidden maze in the center, you would stumble upon the hidden dot, which then if you figured out that you dragged that dot back to the opening chamber, it showed you the guy's name, that hidden Easter egg for the thing. The the key to that was that there was some other mechanic that kind of told you that it was important to click on the walls. And so just out of curiosity and, and straight up, you know, <laughs> like, you know, like Ricardo was talking about earlier, when you're young, you have a whole lot more time. <laughs> so you yeah. just walk around the map clicking on everything. And eventually you'd find this hidden dot and you'd be like, what's this for? There were things that, you know, kind of guided you towards that behavior. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's pretty good game design. Yeah, for sure. But something insane, but you have something earlier that kind of, points you toward the behavior you need to find it out. Uh, Dario Casali was one of the level editors on Half-Life, and he was notorious for always putting very complicated hidden things in his levels. Um, in fact, he was so notorious for it that we all we, we started like having other level editors review his maps before he released them to look for the hidden crap that he'd put in there. Because what he would do is he'd put like hidden rooms in there that you'd have to go through like four or five different like key triggers to open the thing up, and he'd know how to do it. And then he'd have like a huge stash of guns in there. So he'd like start playing the deathmatch map with us and he'd run around and he'd do all of these things to unlock this room and go get the cache of all of the really great weapons and then turn around and murder us all. Oh, what a bastard. <laughs> uh, Dario was awesome. I loved him. He was, he was a very good level designer, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, we had to, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, and eventually people playing the game figured all of that kind of stuff out, like, you know, days or weeks and months after the game was released. It was hilarious. Yeah, Never underestimate your players. <laughs> yeah, it's something funny you see with speedrunning that, you know, there are games from the 80s and 90s that have big speedrunning communities and they are figuring stuff out like nowadays, like mm-hmm. new ways to beat the game or more reliable glitches that, <laughs> right. that help you, you know, lose like five seconds in your total time. It's like the uh, Call of Duty zombie community though. It's like built on gamers figuring out Easter eggs and stuff that you wouldn't even think about. And we'll spend hours and hours and hours to figure out this intense labyrinth of a Easter egg. Yeah, and uh, you know, for Counter Strike, you have a game mode called Surf, and I have no idea how they came up with that. You know, uh, they changed some values in the in the game and then you can like surf around slopes <laughs> and I don't know how they figure it out because it just has uh, swap some values some random stuff and change the 
behavior. We'll never know. That's like the way uh, GTA came up. Because <laughs> I don't know if you guys know, but at the start it was just a Cops and Robbers game. But then the designers realized that being the robber was a lot more fun. <laughs> <laughs> and decided to make the entire game about it. Oh man, good old classic Dungeon Keeper, right? I got no response from any of you when I said that. Have, you, have none of you ever heard no. of Dungeon Keeper? Wow. I played a, play a similar game. So if you've played a, a more modern version of it, Dungeons 2 came out of you know, maybe five or six years ago. They, it's often yeah. viewed as kind of the spiritual successor of Dungeon Keeper. But there's an old game by a studio called Bullfrog Studios in the UK where you played the Dungeon Master. And you built the dungeon by having your little imps go and mine gold. And then you would build different kinds of rooms that would attract different kinds of monsters. And then eventually the heroes from the town above would come and raid your dungeon. And your your goal was to kill them (laughs) and defend your dungeon. And once you did that, then you took over the land. And then you'd move on to the next area of the the map. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's... I think That's the tagline so cool. for it was something like "It's fun being evil" or something like that. It was it was great, you know, to play that. Yeah, to play that side of the equation fun. sometimes. Yeah, it's super fun to be evil in the in video games. What was the oh. other one? Knights of the Old Republic also let you go good or evil, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah but karma mechanics overall—that's something that's not that new. But being able to take both paths. It can be nice if you actually pay attention to what being in a certain karma level will bring to the equation. Right, right. I've, I've actually, so I, I mentioned that I played Fallout 4 as kind of like my first real console game. And yeah. I played through that game at least seven or eight times. And the most fun that I had was definitely playing a bad guy and just like murdering everybody. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, why would I not pickpocket everyone? Right. <laughs> right. It's there are no consequences uh, and they are not real people. So there's, there's right. a ethics point of view. So Exactly. You get the vicarious experience of being, <laughs> being that bad person that you would never actually be in real life. Yeah. Even if just for the consequences. Fun to explore the dark side at times. Yeah. We definitely carried that on for another half an hour after you said, well, how's this end? Yeah. Yeah, That's good. Well, that's all we got for today. We hope you guys enjoyed it. If you want to continue the discussion, go to the community or Facebook and leave a comment. Well, we hope you guys have a great week. Keep on creating, keep on learning, and keep on doing those challenges. Stay awesome, guys. Signing off.